Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Today, we're going to do another reaction episode, and this is to a recent Simon Dixon interview with Stansbury Research. And Daniela Cambone is the interviewer. I really like her as an interviewer. She's worked with Kitco and uh, Gold interviews for a long time. And I, I think she her journalistic stuff is really good. So uh, this is a good interview. I also like Simon Dixon a lot, uh, but he is... We are pretty far apart on what we think is going to happen and how we're going to get to the eventual goal, which we both agree on is like a Bitcoin dominated world. So uh, we have the same goals, but we disagree on how we're going to get there. Anyways, he talks mainly about CBDCs here at the first part. And a lot of my stuff recently has been on CBDCs because it is such a growing field or growing uh, area of interest for all of us here in this space. We all love seeing Bitcoin go up in price and it's going to continue to go up in price. Not Nothing goes up in a straight line. But, you know, we're going to expand our understanding around the monetary system, how we're going to move from a 300 or $500 billion asset to a $10 trillion asset. That takes a little bit of time to understand. So that's what I kind of am diving into here. Anyway, of course, this is used under fair use. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. I'm doing this for educational purposes. We're all learning, including myself. Link to the original is down in the show notes. I'm going to start right from the beginning. Before I hit play here, this show is brought to you by the Bitcoin Dictionary. Go to bitcoindictionary.cc to add this great book to your growing Bitcoin library. Become the smartest person you know on Bitcoin. Also, this episode is going to go out to my members first. That is over on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. You can sign up there, or you can also sign up on Patreon and become a $5 member, and you will get access to this episode early. I will be releasing it in coming probably the next week or so uh, for the public feed, but it's first going to the members. So if you want to get early access to my content, go over there to BitcoinAndMarkets.com and sign up to be a member. All right, let's get into this. I am doing it at 1.25 speed, just so it's a little bit faster. I listen to everything at 1.5 speed or 1.75 speed on uh, YouTube. But uh, yeah, this is going to be a little bit fast, so just to warn you guys. All right, let's go. With the saturation of news uh, between the U.S. election and the pandemic, what tends to happen is certain news items uh, seep through the cracks here. And one of them is regarding the IMF back in October saying that we might see a return uh, to some sort of Bretton Woods. That was uh, the call from their managing director, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, back in October. And I want to talk to, about this today with my guest, Simon Dixon. He is the CEO and co-founder of the online investment platform BankToTheFuture.com. He also wrote a book 10 years ago with the same name, Bank to the future in which he predicted the crisis that we're experiencing now in 2020. He also has another prediction, which we will get to. Uh, but first, uh, welcome to the show, Simon. Hey, really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you. I mean, Max Kaiser has called you the best uh, investment banker in Bitcoin. Um, so I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk, obviously, Bitcoin, digital currency. Uh, but first, uh, this message uh, from the managing director of the IMF that we might see a new Bretton Woods. What do you make of it and what would it look like? All right, before <laughs> before I even let him answer, which is not what you're supposed to do in a reaction episode, but I just wanted to say up front that uh, I think I might have been the first person in the space to call for Brenton Woods 2.0 or say that they're going to go towards a Brenton Woods 2.0. Um, I, I don't know. I said that over a year ago, and in that time, my thinking has kind of matured on that a little bit. I still think that they absolutely need to have a new agreement on a new financial system, but I don't think they can get it. So that's where I'm kind of different today is I don't think that they'll be able to get some sort of large international agreement amongst say a G20 to go to a new system. It's just uh, not that world anymore. It's not a post world war two time anymore where there's going to be some agreement. So uh, yeah, let's see what Simon has to say. 
so I think that we're leaning towards a central bank digital currency world. Um, I first created a video in 2016 saying that uh, central bank digital currencies would be used as a new mechanism to bail out bankrupt banks um, and central banks would rage war on banks. Um, and so the IMF recently made an announcement and I created um, some commentary going through what trying to translate uh, what the IMF is saying into everyday language uh, so people could understand it. But uh, uh, the IMF is calling for Bretton Woods too, and it totally got drowned uh, in the election and pandemic, as you said in the intro, uh, because it's a really, really significant event. And that is that the IMF is uh, you know, a very socialist organization um, that has tried on several occasions since 1944 to inflict a global currency on the world since John Maynard Keynes tried to introduce the Bancor, um, and we ended up with the US dollar debt back standard instead. Um, and uh, the IMF is getting ready now that all central bank balance sheets are completely out of control. Um, governments are entering to, well, globally, we're in $250 trillion of global debt. Um, and uh, I think that the next stage after this election, after this health crisis, um, is banks' uh, balance sheets being exposed for what they actually are. Um, and so the IMF is the perfect type of organization that would like to uh, be involved in negotiating a new monetary system um, and putting their central bank digital currency at the center of that um, in order to really put forward what they tried to achieve with special drawing rights, um, but didn't quite get as far as they wanted to go. No, no. Okay, let's tease this apart a little bit. So um, central bank digital currencies, uh, central banks are going to wage war on banks is what he said, like right up front. And um, I don't think that's going to be the case. I mean, central banks serve the banks. Um, this is a bank centered system. This is not a central bank centered system. The central banks are not central. And until we can grasp that, we won't be able to see the system as it really is or where it's really going. Um, they spent, look, the central banks served the banks in the last financial crisis. They bailed them out. They, you know, did QE, got them all solvent. Now they're all recapitalized and banks are actually very, very solvent right now. They're, they're well capitalized for this, this crisis. But the central banks serve the banks. Let's just get that straight. So if there's going to be a war between central banks and banks, the banks are going to win. Uh, like, well, Michael Saylor in my last podcast, I was saying, or he said he was talking about billion-dollar entities. Um, this time, when we were talking about banks, we we're talking about trillion-dollar entities, okay? Trillion-dollar entities versus domestic banking regulators. That's what the, that's what the Fed is, and that's what central banks are. The, the trillion-dollar entities are going to win. The plumbing is a bank-centered plumbing. The infrastructure is a bank-centered infrastructure. The, the Fed only can do placebo-type actions to try to uh, bring growth back, to try to uh, convince the system to get back to lending and growing. So this is a bank-centered system. If there's going to be a war, the central banks will lose. Now, secondly, and it's IMF thing. So the, the IMF is saying this is a Bretton Woods moment. And I will link to the specific thing where this, what's her name? Kristalina, uh, the managing director of the IMF, where she did this speech and she laid out her three imperatives of the Bretton Woods moment. You know, how do we move forward? And so I'll just tell you what they, those are here. First, it's, quote, the right economic policies. Prudent economic policies and strong institutions are critical for growth, jobs, and improved living standards. Of course, she goes on here for another few paragraphs, but nothing in here is like a precise policy prescription. She talks about debt transparency and creditor coordination, but no uh, kind of idea of what is prudent macroeconomic policies and what constitutes strong institutions and how, how exactly... Do we get there in, in the world of today? Uh, so this is, out of the three imperatives, this is the most practical, but it is lacking in a ton of specificity. Now, the second imperative or her pillar for this Bretton Woods movement is, let's see, what, how do I want to say this? People first. People first. Very nebulous people first. Let's have better health care. Let's have better education, gender equality, uh, put people first, invest in people. Yes, great. That doesn't tell me anything. Everybody says that. Every politician would agree with that. 
everybody would agree with that. From the anarchist libertarian to the fascist person and the socialist, the communist, everybody would agree with that. Right? It's how you get that. What's the best way to get that? That's the problem here. Or that's just the point of um, disagreement. It's just very nebulous and there's no policy prescription. And the last pillar is climate change. A non-economic problem. This is a political problem. This is not a monetary issue to be solved. It's a political issue. And it's thrown in here as one of her three key pillars to a new Bretton Woods moment. It's ridiculous beyond belief. Okay? It's, it's just... I don't know how anyone could read these three key pillars and be like, this is seriously going to happen. Okay. Also missing in this entire speech is any mention of the SDR. There's no mention of the SDR. There's no mention of a digital SDR. There's no mention of an IMF centered CBDC. I have not heard any talk about a, some sort of international CBDC. Of course, Libra was a private digital currency, a global, a private global digital currency, however you would want to say that, but it wasn't central bank. So in a CBDC, that's a central bank digital currency. There's no talk at all of some international cooperation to make a uh, international CBDC. It, I don't think it exists. Maybe I missed it. It's not been headlined anywhere. I don't see any evidence of that, that they want to do anything like that. I don't even know what this whole IMF thing is saying. And we covered this on FedWatch. Like, <laughs> this is the push towards Brenton Woods. If this is a push towards Brenton Woods, it ain't going to happen, people. It ain't going to happen. All right, let's continue. Now, Simon, you know, as we know, post-World War II, Bretton Woods was the big beset, right? But what does it look like in today's world? Is it is it, you know, backed by digital currency? Is it backed by gold? What does it, you know, what does it represent? Uh, well, I don't think it's going to be backed by gold. I think it's going to be a repackaging of all this global debt and toxic assets. Um, so really, we're in an over-leveraged economy, over-leveraged financial system, over-leveraged individuals max out on their credit cards and student loans and all sorts of other debts. Corporations that have been using the, the debt capital markets to push up the stock markets um, and governments that are moving towards a modern monetary theory style economy uh, where everything is funded by quantitative easing stimulus. Um, eventually, I believe that uh, when people, when the stimulus packages stop and helicopter money stops, um, then the true nature of people's individual balance sheets comes out. And the first, the first place that that hits is the real estate markets. And the real estate markets are really the mechanism by which private banks create digital currencies every time they issue a loan. Um, and so if the banks haven't sold enough of those toxic assets to your pension, um, like they did during the, before the last financial crisis, um, then it exposes the bank's balance sheet for what they are. And because banks are definitely too big to fail, and the impact of that deflation on the global world would be disastrous for all, um, then I believe that this time, rather than bail-ins and bail-outs because of all the social unrest at the moment, it could be replaced with just simply letting a bank go bust. And rather than using some of these FDIC insurance schemes that only have approximately 1% of all the deposits it's insuring, or less than 1%, um, then you need a new form of money that would be injected into the economy. And a real simple way of doing that is just simply creating an app at the central bank uh, the central bank saying, everybody download this app, you'll get some helicopter money. And if the Chase Bank goes bust, then any deposit you had will be replaced with this new central bank digital currency. You're essentially replacing debt-based money that was created by a private bank with non-debt-based money created by a central bank. And you have a non-inflationary mechanism for deleveraging the economy. And then we're going to have currency wars globally. And the IMF wants to do that on a global scale. All right. Another section here to tease out. I mean, I... Couldn't really disagree more, <laughs> more with this section. Repackaging of debt. Um, so he's, say, he's saying when, when the QE stops, when stimulus stops, you know, the tide will go out and we'll see who's, who's insolvent. And pretty much everybody's insolvent. So why would it stop? You know, why would the system that we have today choose... To not do QE, to not just do the next thing. Look at Japan. They've been doing it forever. I think they started QE in 2003, so that's 17 years, but they've been um, doing other fiscal things to try to save their economy for 20 years. So what's what's different now? What, why would 
you know, it's not going to lead to inflation. It's going to be just lead to zero growth, zero growth, zero inflation like Japan has had. So if you're choosing between like a 50% drawdown by, by letting it collapse or just going go at 0% growth for the next few years and maybe hoping that something changes in the next 20 years, you're going to choose to go 0%. That's just how it is. You're going to continue to kick the can down the road, go higher and higher and higher with your debt levels. And of course, you're going to chase people into Bitcoin, which is kind of what we want, but it's it's not from uh, it's not going to give impetus to a CBDC. So then what he's saying is um, they're going to let it go bust, but this time instead of bailing out, they're going to bail out with CBDCs. So they're going to take like, let's say a customer has 250000 in a bank bank account somewhere. I don't know why that would be the case, but uh, let's say there is. And instead of uh, having a bail-in or bail-out, what they'll do is they'll say, we'll make you whole. We're going to let the bank collapse, but we're going to give you 250000 worth of this CBDC. We're going to trade out digital units A for digital units B. Uh, how that is different? Well, there's a few things. First off, if, if it's not debt-based, it's a pure fiat currency, and those never last. Those never work. It'll be destroyed by the market in no time. Also, the entire banking system, all the plumbing, all the infrastructure, that is, it's not as simple as saying we're going to let Chase Bank fail because all of these banks are connected in the plumbing of the financial system, of the monetary systems. They're all connected through money markets, through different derivative type things, interest rate swaps. I mean, there's so many different things that are built up that it's intractable. You cannot unravel this system. Okay. And if you just, it's not as easy as letting a bank fail and replacing it with a central bank digital currency. And I know that Simon knows this. I mean, he, he was an investment banker for a period. And so he's smarter about this stuff than I am. I don't know why he wouldn't take that under consideration here. There is no way that a central bank digital currency can replace the banking system without a massive, massive drawdown. Like you're talking probably over 50% of the global economy, gone. These people aren't going to want to do it. The trillion-dollar entities are not going to want to do this. You cannot transmute debt-based fiat for unbacked fiat. See, that debt actually gives it a backing. That actually gives it something, right? It's, it's not that good, and it eventually fades away like it is now, but it's not uh, something that's going to explode like a non debt-backed fiat currency. Those things never last very long, and they always hyperinflate or go away very, very quickly. Now, one thing I do kind of agree is this could happen in emerging markets in some very small economies, um, possibly even in small developed economies. But like, for example, here, Barbados has a recently launched CBDC, uh, the sand dollar. I believe it was Barbados. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But their economy and maybe their population is about the same size as a mid-size U.S. city. So when you're talking that, you have different size stakeholders, just different problems. You don't have trillion-dollar entities. You have maybe a few billion-dollar entities, right? So that's just a completely different problem than going, changing the U.S., financial system, the US dollar, euro dollar financial system to something else. I mean, this is dramatically different. So yes, I can see emerging markets going this way, small economies maybe trying to do this. But again, there's no international system here. There's, um, yeah, <laughs> currency wars would erupt pretty damn quickly. There would be massive inflation in these in all of these people that try to do this. So um, I, I don't think it can happen this way type of currency than one we've maybe spoken about in the past, as I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is a deleveraging. These are debt-free money. You know, people just say, well, we already have digital currency. Almost exactly. 97% of all the money is. But that is all backed by debt, and it was created by a private bank every time. It's more than deleveraging. It's the entire financial system. 
So the way the global financial system works today is pretty much on instant overnight credit or swaps or collateral or whatever, right? It's all this plumbing and the relationships built up between these banks, between large organizations where you're dealing with billions or trillions of dollars moving through. So it's not just a simple fact of deleveraging. It runs on debt. The, the petrol for the global economy is debt. Now, if you want to switch your global economy to a natural gas engine or to work on solar or, you know, have batteries or whatever your energy system is, you have to redo the engine, completely redo the car. Okay. It's not just, we're going to replace this uh, debt-based petrol with a CBDC. It doesn't work like that. It won't work like that. And Powell knows it. And so do some of these other big bankers and big wealth funds and big uh, trillion-dollar entities. A loan was issued or a mortgage was taken out. And this is injecting. We've got precedent for this. It was done in the non-digital age during the American Civil War when the greenback was created in order to fund the Civil War. Essentially, the government just created this new, this new money, injected it into the economy debt-free rather than going through a central bank or a private bank. I think we'll get that with these central bank digital currencies. So, so a lot and what happened to the greenback? It didn't last long. It didn't last long. Th these type of experiments have happened many times in history. Many times in the United States, even. Um, I think the greenback might have been the just the most recent wide-scale one. But there was, uh, in the early days of the United States, in the colonial times, they, lots of people experimented, lots of different locations experimented with this type of pure fiat. Um, of course, globally, it's happened many times. And, and every single time, it doesn't work. It lasts for a few years. Ten at most. And then it goes bust. Right? And so... While the Federal Reserve folks, they're the economists, the PhD economists with the big, nice bookshelf and leather couches in their offices and American flags hanging up behind them, they have, they might not be the best at seeing the limitations of their own system and being able to predict different things within their own system, but they can see economic history. They know the history of the greenback. Right? They know the history of all of these other pure fiat currencies, and we don't have a pure fiat currency. So this is uh, there's no way that they would willingly go down this road. Even Lacey Hunt, which is one of he's one of the most well respected like bond investors, and he he I think he's worked in government agencies or at the Fed in the past, but he he's a real big uh, well respected guy in bond investing. And he knows, he said it in many interviews, that if they did go down this route of printing money, it would happen very quickly and it would be very painful for everybody. Everybody knows this. Nobody wants to go down that road, even the central bankers. They're not evil people. Well, maybe they're more evil. <laughs> maybe it's a spectrum. But they don't, they don't wish pain on themselves, right? Uh, so, anyways, let's uh, continue. A lot of questions uh, are coming to mind right now, Simon. Um, so if, you know, we have the ECB talking about uh, an e-euro, we have the IMF papers uh, alluding to a digital currency, but we see it in the Department of Justice in the U.S. How far away do you think we are from this reality? And what does it mean for our money in the bank right now? Um, it means I don't think depositors need to be scared of their deposits through bail-ins and bail-outs because this new mechanism exists for making sure that consumers don't lose their money. What we do need to be concerned about is the effect that money is going to have on our personal liberties, freedoms, and privacy in the future. Um, because I think in downloading this app with the central bank digital currency, you're going to have to opt into all those terms and conditions on the way into your free money and your, your deposit uh, replacement, essentially. And those, uh, those opt-ins are going to be, um, you know, at least with private bank-created money through fractional reserve banking, the money is one step removed from the government. This is a one step closer to the government. So you can imagine the policies that we have there. If you want to implement compulsory vaccinations, right. um, if you want to allow people to get on planes, um, then your central bank digital currency and the money will be connected to your passport. Um, and you can have more and more draconian policies implemented whereby, you know, if we, me, you know, if we're on a Zoom call trying to do transaction, I'm in one country, you're in another and maybe the servers in this, this call is rooted through China, as Zoom calls were in the past, then there's three governments that might potentially try and take some tax out of that transaction 
They can automate tax collection. Right. The Bank of England just contacted all of the clearing banks and asked them, are you ready for negative interest rates? Is it, what effect will that have on your technology? And they've been working on their central bank digital currency for several years now. Okay. The, the, the common thing is, yeah, they've been working on the CBDCs. They're coming. They're, they have this plan. It's, it's a well-thought-out plan. And it, it really reminds me a lot of this New World Order type stuff, uh, a cabal, a conspiracy at the top to bring this about. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not smaller conspiracies or anything, but it, you know, collusion always breaks down. That's why it doesn't work. It's not the best way to how to run your system. Central planning doesn't work. So um, I don't buy it. I do not buy that the central bank digital currencies are right around the corner. Fed Powell, like, okay, Simon said that the central bank of England uh, told clearing houses or whatever to how would they handle negative interest rates. Well, I'll raise you this. Powell has said many, many times that they're not doing a CBDC, at least anytime soon in the foreseeable future. And if they do, this is very important. If they do, they will not be replacing cash. This was very recently, this last week. I mean, this was his first point, and I'm not putting it past Powell to lie about things or to uh, leave things out, you know, lie by omission or anything like that. But he said this was his very first point. They're not doing a CBDC, but if they did, it wouldn't replace cash. Like, that seems pretty damn important. It's even so much as Lagarde, head of the ECB, she had to follow that and say, no, we're not, it's a complement to cash. We're not trying to get rid of cash. And the ECB also says they're at a research stage. They're going to make some decision in January of next year, this coming January, if they are going to go forward with a digital euro. So they haven't even decided if they're doing it. And then she said that they're two to four years away. And of course, everything's uh, late and over budget. So I would put it at five years. I would just draw some line and say, Five years, give or take a year, probably. So, look, they're very far away from this. And if, this, if the U.S. is not doing it and the ECB is not doing it for five years, okay, China's doing it, but who's going to buy into that? If, if your choice is a pure fiat CBDC versus a debt-backed fiat system with rails and infrastructure and the whole financial system behind it, like the U.S. dollar, which are you going to choose? Something that's going to last for five years and blow up like the greenback? No, you're not. And no trillion-dollar agency uh, entity is going to do that either. Nobody's going to follow on this Chinese digital yuan. I, I, I heard a statistic. I mean, I read a statistic that the digital yuan only is used for 1% of global transactions. Not Sorry, let me say that again. The yuan, the, RM, the renminbi, is only used for 1% of transactions globally. <laughs> but I didn't realize that it was all with Hong Kong. So if you take out the transactions with Hong Kong, it's approximately zero. The RMB is used in approximately zero international transactions. What does that say for the success prospects of their digital yuan. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And if it comes with all of these strings attached, they're going to have to ram it down their people's throats. Then what? Then you're talking about a totalitarian thing with all of these invasive privacy. You know, you can't have privacy. You have capital controls. You have all this stuff. Who's going to store there? The capital flight is going to be outrageous and people are not going to want to get into it. Let's say you're some businessman in the Philippines. You're going to say, no, let's do it in dollars. Let's do it in dollars. So I do not buy this whole thing about the whole, it's just the dominoes are stacking up. CBDCs are coming. Just wait. Then there's going to be, someone's going to hit the domino and all these CBDCs are going to come online and yet it ain't going to happen. Right, it's not going to happen from the U.S. anytime soon, and it's not going to happen from the ECB anytime soon. There you go. That's fifty percent of the world. That's ninety percent of global transactions. Now, if you're a marginal country, are you going to want to go at your own? No, India isn't going to do it. They just signed a big uh, alliance, or yeah, alliance with um with the U.S. Australia, nah, 
South America? No. So who exactly is going to go away from the dollar and euro, the euro dollar um, financial system? Nobody. Okay, let's continue. And what does this say about anonymity, right? Like, I feel like we'd have to be giving away so much more information. And wasn't this at the heart of digital currencies? Absolutely. So, you know, this is where you get people ask, well, is that the end of Bitcoin, for example? Well, Bitcoin has a different use case. Bitcoin gives you the ability to own your own money, to spend your own money, and to have a monetary policy that is fixed and changed and can't change at all. Um, With these central bank digital currencies, they won't have a blockchain. There won't be any transparency at the currency level in terms of accountability of the currency to the people. It will be the people giving everything to the currency. Um, And so, the yeah, anonymity, anonymity is gone. You know, that that went in 9-11 with the Patriot Act. Um, it's always been moved towards non-privacy. You know, when you deposit your money at the bank, the bank is the legal owner of that money. They can spend it as they choose, and they can use it as collateral to create to dilute the value of your money by creating new um, new debt into the economy. So privacy is over in these currencies. But fortunately, um, this is where competition really comes in. Okay, before he gets onto this competition, which is the Bitcoin angle, um, privacy is not dead. All right, it's only dead for low net worth individuals that don't want to use cash. You can still use cash in the U.S. You can still use cash in other places. It's becoming less popular in other places, but you still can use it. So yeah, you can have that privacy. Granted, many places have draconian measures, but remember, a lot of these laws and financial laws and financial regulations have been able to support themselves because the global economy has been growing. It's been able to finance itself. People are less likely to revolt if they're growing at 10% a year. Once you start taking that growth rate down to 0% and you start having massive shifts in income inequality and things like that, those draconian measures are much harder to keep in place and implement in the first place. So this is kind of like a bubble thinking. You know, you think, so over the last 30 years, all these draconian measures on on banking and and transactions have come in and the reason why is because people were growing so much and people weren't worried about it but now when the growth goes away of course people are going to be worried about it and so um that's what i have to say about about that plus look freedom and privacy are the best way to structure your economy your society you're going to have the most prosperity and the most happiness If you say, I'm going to take privacy away, it's like saying you're going to take freedom away. And that means you're going to take prosperity away and happiness of your people. And you're going to cause more internal revolts and and things. It's going to be harder to get what you want done. It's not dead either. It's just dead for the low-income people. It's not dead for the big trillion-dollar entities. Remember the FinCEN leaks that came out a little while back, a few weeks back, was they... I think it was Financial Times, but I could be wrong. They they concluded that $5 trillion a year are laundered through these big banks. $5 trillion. They have financial privacy. Look, there's offshore banks. There's tax havens. There's all sorts of money laundering. They have financial privacy. A third of the world is gray market. They have financial privacy. Or else they would be shut down. There is financial privacy in the world. It's not gone. Yeah, I just totally disagree with that. All right, let's get into the Bitcoin thing. And this is where currency wars actually become a utility for people because countries are competing to all get you know, significance in this new monetary system. Um, and so really, by having a currency like Bitcoin, in a sense, it can regulate the regulator. It can regulate the fiat money and create better fiat money because people have an exit um, and that gives more choice. And then people have to create um, you know, different forms of money come along. I mean, I mentioned at the start that you had predicted. And you- yes, and this, this is exactly my argument. Of course, you guys probably know this, but uh, for any new listeners, I'll say this again. The global economy is going to grow at 0% roughly. There's going to be stagnation, um, civil unrest. Uh, the U.S. is going to become more isolationist. Globalization is going to contract. That means prices will go up because, not because of inflation, but because Uh, supply chains are being cut back, right? And so you will have to manufacture in places that's more expensive and you'll have to pass on those cost increases to the customer. So prices will go up, but not because of inflation. It's just because demand is shifting 
the U.S. is pulling back. And in this global world, right, that where we're all interconnected in globalization, which country is most exposed to the risk of deglobalization? It's not the U.S. The U.S. only, like their GDP, only like 10 to 20 percent of the U.S. GDP is due to trade, international trade. Most of the trade, most of the economic business of this of the the U.S. is done within the U.S. and now we're energy independent, right? So the U.S. can back down, plus up their economy here, and they will be relatively okay. China, no way. It's the total, complete opposite for China. They have horrible demographics. They are dependent, probably 80% of their economy is dependent on international trade and export and all this stuff. They're horribly exposed. And as the as deglobalization picks up speed, China is going to be hurt. All of these other countries are going to be hurt more than the U.S. And it's going to add to the convergence onto the dollar. More and more people are going to come into the dollar. And so the dollar is going to strengthen. Their currencies are going to hyperinflate or inflate have high inflation like we see in Turkey right now. And the chess pieces are going to be moved around, right? Borders will be redrawn. But in this whole coming global economy, coming reset, is it's going to be a stagnation. That's the general rule of the next decade, is stagnation. The only glimpse of growth, the only glimpse of optimism is Bitcoin. People are going to invest in Bitcoin. They're going to invest in Bitcoin infrastructure. They're going to start building out a parallel system. And that is where everything is going to be. So, yeah, we kind of see a similar thing with the competition and all this people going over to Bitcoin. But it's totally different reason why we get there. In your book, uh, written 10 years ago, Bank to the Future, uh, a financial crisis in 2020, which is quite impressive that you had that uh, clairvoyancy, I would say. Um, your your new prediction um, is that central banks uh, will now bypass banks and be going directly to us. Um, how far away are we from that? And, um, you know, just tell us a little bit more about your forecast here. Yeah, so for the, for, for the last decades, I've been investing in financial technology companies because I believe that um, in, the, in terms of the fiat money, there's two trends that are happening here. There's a um, financial system that's being built outside the financial system. That's Bitcoin. Um, that's all the innovation that's happening there. And then you've got the traditional financial system. And I believe that because of the over-leverage, the banks are just going to be taken out of the equation. They can come back and repackage themselves as financial technology companies. But I believe that in the future, the money supply is not going to be M0, M1, M2, and all these crazy complexities and central banks using you know, um, policies to try and stimulate how much money banks create through the debt markets. Um, I think it's just going to be M. And that money supply is either going to create inflation and deflation. It's going to be really simple for people to understand because it's going to be an API key um, created by the central bank. It's going to be algorithmic monetary policy. Um, and financial technology companies are going to be able to build the technology on top of it um, and uh, really replace the role of banking. The central bank doesn't want to deal with customer service, um, but it can release the technology for financial technology companies um, to actually build and, and all of the services that the traditional financial mm -hmm. system has. The banks can play their role in that, but they will look very different to how they look today. So, Simon, I, I want to ask. Okay, this is interesting. Um, what I'll say about this is that, okay, you said there would be two different types of parallel things, outside and inside. That's kind of what I was talking about. Um, but he's saying the inside is going to go the CBDC route. But I see it differently. I see there's going to be outside, which is Bitcoin. Uh, inside, which is the legacy system that we have now, dollar, the euro dollar system. You know, not just euros and dollars. The euro dollar system is global. It just means offshore dollar. And um, it's it's a international financial system. And that is the legacy system that will continue. There's no evidence that it's not going to continue. Then there's going to be marginal players that go the way of the CBDC. So there, it's a three-part system. It's not just two. And again... If it's a war between the central bank and banks, the banks will win, not the central banks. All the central bank has in their toolkit is uh, QE and maybe being able to move the uh, interest rate around, but interest rates are going to be stuck at zero or negative for the, t for the foreseeable future. 
So they, they really don't have any other weapons other than expectation policy, placebo management of the situation. How are you preparing for this future that you're envisioning? I mean, financially preparing. Are you 100% in Bitcoin? Um, I'm not 100% in Bitcoin, but uh, I have what I call a retirement plan B, which is a plan for what happens if the financial system doesn't, um, you know, doesn't go. So really, I think people should be preparing for three things. In this monetary renegotiation, no one fully knows what's going to happen. It could cause runaway inflation, deflation, economic growth, or decline, because it's just 100% politics. There's no market forces in here. This is what the politicians sat around the table will do. And so I'm protecting myself. I'll let him talk about his portfolio stuff here. Uh, he does have good content, guys. So go over to his his channel, Simon Dixon, on YouTube and, and check that out. But no, there there are market forces. That's exactly why QE doesn't work. That's exactly why the, the Fed has not been able to fix anything over the last 12 years. And Japan hasn't been able to fix anything over the last 20 years. Because there are market forces. You can't make the banks lend at low these low interest rates. Remember... Money becomes tight at the extremes of interest interest rates. At low interest rate, money becomes tight because banks won't lend. At high levels of interest rates, then the borrowers won't borrow. And now we're stuck at the bottom because we're over-indebted, and that's just, it's the, the debt trap. So no, it is a free market system. It's not totally free, but the market forces still matter. That's why the Fed's actions can't fix it. In three ways. I have a traditional portfolio that, that um, is based upon the US dollar still being at the center of the world and okay. um, you know, uh, do, doing that traditional way, uh, prepare for different outcomes. Uh, I also have a gold-based um, uh, you know, portfolio and I have a Bitcoin-based based portfolio. Really, US dollar portfolio is things containing the status quo and being renegotiated into a non-privacy-based system. And gold is with the dollar has a shift, then gold comes in. And Bitcoin has utility that gold doesn't have, which is, you know, most people have to store it in Switzerland and Singapore, um, and the custodians can just shut down during lockdown. Um, Bitcoin allows you to own your own money close to you, um, and so has, and you can send it digitally and globally. And so I think Bitcoin will perform, and it has done for 10 of the last 12 years, the highest performing asset class in history, 9 million percent returns. Um, but also, you know, it's worth looking at other eventualities, because at the end of the day, um, some politicians can decide to make it illegal in their countries like they did in gold in the past. But unfortunately, um, competing currencies will see that opportunity um, and you need to be looking at different eventualities too. And, and what a rally indeed, as we're speaking right now, Bitcoin, you know, crossing, easily crossing over the 14,000 uh, mark here. What's your forecast uh, for Bitcoin? Let's talk within the next five years. Um, I've, never, I've stayed away from price forecasts ever since I've been involved. I spoke at the very first Bitcoin conference in the world um, and it's been a crazy ride. I've seen my $30 Bitcoin crash to $3 in one day. I've seen my $1,250 Bitcoin go down to $250. I've seen my $20,000 Bitcoin crash down to $3,000 in one month. I fully expect my $100,000 Bitcoin to crash to $30,000. But the trend is simply clear. It is, it, the supply cannot be changed. And each and every year, people realize and the government give people more and more reasons want to own their own money, spend their own money, and have a monetary policy that cannot change. Mm. Um, we're seeing real, real scarcity within the Bitcoin markets. Um, and you know, getting those Bitcoins at the moment, uh, corporations and public companies are all trying to suck them up for their balance sheets um, to hedge against the dollar at the moment. So um, I think you know, the, it's, it's, it's really an asymmetric bet. Either Bitcoin is worth significantly more than it is right now, or it's worth nothing because there's some kind of bug or, or one of the risks that could be implemented into Bitcoin. And, and Simon, I have, I have seen you say that we could be experiencing asset price deflation and consumer price inflation. Would you say that's already here now? Um, well, asset price deflation is being prevented by governments. If you look at the S&P 500 right now, it simply consists of six big tech companies that are benefiting from all of the lockdowns where no small business is allowed to operate, so everyone has to purchase from Amazon. Um, everyone needs new computers, so Microsoft and Apple are doing well, and everybody needs entertainment, so rather than the cinema, we're going to Netflix, um, and Facebook and Google is our mechanism for actually communicating and getting. Those six companies account for approximately 30% of the S&P, but behind that is 490 companies um, that are actually really dependent upon Federal Reserve stimulus. So really, the market, the asset price inflation that we're experiencing right now is simply inflation, which is why I believe that uh, at the moment we don't really know, but we're probably moving to a Bison-led uh, market because 
Um, the markets and institutional investors now believe that free markets are not good for markets. Um, Republican is not good. Lower tax is not good. Stimulus is good for markets. And so everything's a Federal Reserve-led market. But eventually, once those monetary renegotiations happen, I believe that we need massive corrections in asset prices because it's created this ginormous wealth inequality globally that needs to be reversed. And people need more affordable assets, not higher priced assets. Okay, um, basically heading towards a banana republic, it sounds like, Simon. Well, I do think that this is one of the most exciting times in financial history. And I do think that there are many tools available to us um, to actually move this in the direction that it needs to go. So to me, it's not all doom and gloom. No. But right. as an individual, you really need to be on top of these things, right. which is why channels like this are so important, yeah. because everything's speculation now. And you, you have to speculate, otherwise someone's speculating for you. All right. I let that play for a little bit longer there, three or four minutes, because he said a lot of things in there that he kind of sums up his position on the current inflation deflation debate and so there's some good nuggets in there i'm going to try to pull those out here he starts with i think he said six companies in the s p that have 30 percent of the market um, i share his general loathing for that or disgust i don't know if you'd call it disgust but it, it feels wrong uh, but you know these are the biggest companies with the biggest network effects a billion people use facebook i don't but a billion other people do and so it's going to be worth a lot of money. These network effects are convergent. And as people, they're looking for a safe place to put their money. Um, and these assets have a convergent property. They keep going up in price. So there's a little bit of a Giffen good or Veblen good mixed in there. Um, it's, and again, network effects bring it all together. And so, yes, of course, these are going to be higher priced assets. That's just how it works. Um, other type of asset price inflation, um, which is really weird saying, by the way, I, why isn't asset price appreciation? You know, it's not from inflation and it, prices don't prove inflation, right? That's backwards. It's using, uh, what, what's the term? What's the fallacy? Proving the antecedent or something like this. Um, the fallacy, the antecedent, uh, I can't remember what that <laughs> logical fallacy is, but it's, um, yeah, it's just backwards. So you can't start with prices and then say there's inflation. You have to start with inflation and, and look for it in prices. So another example would be real estate. And I talked about this in a previous show where, you know, um, lending standards are getting more difficult or they're getting stricter. And so, yes, more credit worthy people are able to get loans from banks. And so that anything that's appreciating is most likely going to be bought with these new loans. That's the source of the credit is going to go to these more credit worthy people. And so the more credit, the, the section of the market that is more credit worthy people where they own assets, that is going to continue to go up in value. But that's due to lending standards, which is due to low interest rates, which is due to a debt trap. So it's not inflation. It's actually deflation. These, these, the debt trap leads to low interest rates, which leads to higher lending standards, which leads to only credit worthy people being able to access money. And that leads to the assets that they usually buy going up in value. It's a chain, it's a lot, a chain of logic here. Okay. But nowhere in there is inflation. 490 companies, he said, are dependent on Fed stimulus in the S&P. Well, the Fed doesn't stimulate anything, okay? Remember, it's a placebo effect. So the Fed isn't stimulating anything. If they were, it would have worked, right? I mean, they went from under a trillion dollar balance sheet to a four trillion dollar balance sheet during the great or the yeah the great financial crisis. And what happened? Nothing. There is no stimulus from the Fed, so they are not dependent on Fed stimulus. So why this is happening, the total amount of credit is still contracting. It's only that what's being created, what new credit is being created, is favoring a certain demographic, the rich folks. Uh, it's a tricky point, but total lending is contracting. That's deflationary. But the lending that is occurring is concentrated in the rich, credit-worthy folks. So totally, we have a deflation but we have like a pinpointed type of inflation, I guess you could say, Cantillon effect, 
more specifically. And that leads to asset price appreciation. It's not asset price inflation. It's all contingent on the type of money, right? So if we had a gold-backed currency, then it would be different. If we had Bitcoin, it would be different. But since we have this debt-based system, the inevitable end state is a debt trap and stagnation. 0% growth, very low interest rates, and you have a the rich getting richer and you have all these asset price bubbles, I guess you could say, but they're asset price appreciation. It's not due to inflation. It's due to the end of a cycle of debt-based money. It all ties into where I think we're going. And a CBDC, bringing in these CBDCs, like Simon says he thinks it's coming, um, that doesn't fix anything. That actually lights a fire. It's like throwing a match into a bucket of gasoline. It's not going to end well. It's not going to take long, and it's not going to end well. Why fight it? Why fight the Fed if that is the real end state? That is the real mantra. Why fight the Fed, not don't fight the Fed? All right, but that's all I have for today, guys. I recommend going to watch this whole video. He goes into portfolio advice. You know, he has a, a, bu a bunch of videos on that, actually, on his channel. So go check out his channel. I like Simon. He's very successful. He's not a scammer. So I hope I wish him best of luck with any, everything. To wrap up, I agree with him on where we're going towards Bitcoin eventually. But I disagree on where we are at right now. And where we are going immediately from here, how we get from here to Bitcoin. This is going out first to members at bitcoinandmarkets.com or members at patreon.com forward slash bitcoinandmarkets. If you want to get access to all my member content immediately on release, then you can go sign up there. This podcast is brought to you by the Bitcoin Dictionary, bitcoindictionary.cc. It is a great addition to any Bitcoin or money library. Be the smartest person you know on Bitcoin. I also have the Fundamentals Report that goes out free every week. If you aren't subscribed, consider doing that. It's also a good way to get loved ones or friends into Bitcoin. I tried to keep it to a five-minute read with a lot of images. Jeff C., my partner in that, we have done a good job, I think, on that. Keeping it accessible to beginners, but also very informative to more experienced Bitcoiners. That's it. If you haven't checked out my other recent reaction podcast episodes, check them all out at bitcoinandmarkets.com. See you next time.